0: And, and special events. For our panelists, we have Gregory Fairchild. He's the E. Fair Bigelow Associate Professor of Business Administration here at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Fairchild serves as an academic director for Darden's Institute for Business and Society. He teaches strategic management, entrepreneurship, and ethics in business in business. I'm sorry, in Darden's MBA and executive education programs. He has received a number of awards for teaching excellence at Darden. Also with us is Lewis Nelson. He's Professor of Architectural History, the Associate Dean in the School of Architecture, and Director of the Program in Historic Preservation. She's a specialist in the built environments of American colonial architecture and the architectures and landscapes of the early modern Atlantic world. And we have in the middle uh, Charlotte Rogers and she's the assistant professor of Spanish at the University of Virginia. She's received her PhD from Yale University where she specialized in Cuban and Latin American literature. Ms. Rogers has published several articles and a book called Jungle Fever. And this is about a Cuban novelist, Algero
1: Alejo Carpentier. Thank you. Welcome.
0: She's frequently, she frequently does research at a foundation dedicated to him in Havana. Uh, her most recent, recent trip to Cuba was in March of 2016, just a few days before President Obama. Please help me welcome our panelists today that will speak to us on Cuba. Well,
2: first, welcome back. Um, it's great to see you. It's great to see that you are far more comfortably dressed than I am today. Um, it says you're having the type of day that I wish I was having. Um, Althea's talked about the uh, the weather. It's a great day. We're going to try to take you on some journeys with us. Um, what we've done is we've pulled together some of the activity here at the University around Cuba. We're sure you've got lots of questions. Uh, you're here for a reason, and we suspect it has something to do with your own thoughts about uh, this wonderful island. And so we're going to have some time to get acquainted with you. We're going to tell a few stories, uh, as each of us do. And then we hope we'll uh, have some chance to take your questions about, again, this place that's rapidly changing. You know, I'll start us off and just say a few things. Um, You know, I'm going to, on December 15th, 2014, I was in a hotel in Miami. And uh, I look, I'm checking out of the hotel. My wife and I are getting ready to go to the taxi. And across uh, the monitor in the hotel, um, incoming announcement President Obama will announce new policy on Cuba uh, today at noon. Now, we had a plane that we had to catch uh, out of the Miami airport. And I said to my wife, "Um, I think we need to hold on and wait uh, to see what this announcement is. Now, why is that? It's because on January third, only two weeks later, I was prepared to take 26 students to Cuba for the first time. And uh, this I tell you this story as a notion of just how rapidly change is occurring in this place but also how um, controversial this change is. Uh, As excited as my 26 students were to go to Cuba, I have to tell you as a faculty member, there were faculty at my institution who are from Cuba and of Cuban descent who weren't sure whether this was the type of trip the University of Virginia and the Darden School should be sponsoring. It's that type of discussion that we think, at least at the Darden School, really enriches what we do. That we could go to an island uh, to talk initially about the questions of how this island transitions, how the economy in this island transitions with uh, the beginning of market reforms. But then we found ourselves embroiled in a much larger political discussion about human rights abuses, about questions of dictatorships. And uh, that's the type of thing that we really enjoy when we get a chance to do that. So I'm going to stand down, and I'm going to turn to, uh, to Lewis and have him talk just a little bit about um, himself. And again, we're going to make this as interactive as we possibly can. So we'll, we'll say a little bit, we'll listen a little bit, and we'll talk to you.
3: Thank you, Greg. Uh, so I'm Lewis Nelson, and um, in my introduction, Althea indicated that I was an architectural historian, associate dean in the School of Architecture. Um, but it's really critical that we recognize that I, So I'm a historian. And I write history through buildings. And one of the deep convictions that I have is that surviving historic buildings are evidence in the writing of local, social, and cultural history. So one of my convictions is that the surviving built environment is, in fact, evidence in the writing of history. Um, a second conviction I have is that uh, too frequently, historians and architectural historians write histories only about the powerful. So if we put those two things together, one of the fundamental convictions I then have is that I've got to take students into the field to document buildings associated with non-powerful people. And that's a framework by which I then engage in, um, in, in, a, field, in a field school. So starting in 2003, 2004, um, through about 2013, uh, I took 20 students every summer. And we lived in a small town on the north coast of Jamaica for five weeks where we learned to engage the community, we documented historic buildings, which actually you could see here if the slide wasn't, wasn't uh, cut off, there's a series of students, this white, this yellow line here is a measuring tape. Um, but uh, we spent a lot of time in uh, very low-end uh, buildings, associated with uh, the poor in any one particular community. Uh, we live together with those folks, we hear their stories in the present, we project those stories back uh, to the past and we document the buildings uh, that they currently live in as evidence of past lifeways. And And through that, um, we also in fact gauge, engage in um, processes of stabilization of that particular built environment. So we often, um, in Jamaica, we were partnering with uh, uh, local uh, carpenters and local masons uh, to learn traditional conservation and building preservation techniques. Uh, and then uh, the students were both documenting historic buildings uh, through the through the guise of um, helping to helping us collectively to understand the history of that community, but we're also contributing to the stabilization and preservation conservation of that community uh, in partnership with members from that community. And so that's the field school that I've ran uh, that I've run in Jamaica for the last uh, twenty years. I sorry, the last ten years. Um, I've taken the last three summers off. Um, the uh, one of the critical uh, frameworks uh, in this issue was the, in that decision, was the fact that uh, the Cuban, sorry, the Jamaican government uh, signed a contract with Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines uh, to fundamentally transform this town where we had worked for the last ten years. Um, and we did see that, that town fundamentally transformed. About two months ago, I had the great opportunity to travel with a group of parents and alumni, uh, such as yourselves, uh, to Cuba for an eight-day trip. Uh, and on that trip, uh, I was asked to go just because I know something about, the, about the, um, the Caribbean more broadly. I'd never been to Cuba. But on that trip, we went to a, a town on the south coast called Trinidad, which you see here. Trinidad has an extraordinary surviving built environment, largely built in the 18th century. Buildings, um, some gutted, some intact. Um, but because of economic disenfranchisement, uh, lack of investment uh, by the national government, uh, this is an incredible surviving built environment. It's also a fairly isolated community with a really spectacular um, local community with a a strong sense of self. And so one of the things that I'm considering, I'm going back again in September uh, to begin to meet with some uh, local community members. Um, One of the things that I'm considering is, well, what would the next 10 years of my career look like were I to um, slightly transform but replicate uh, the Jamaica program uh, on the south coast of Cuba? One of the things that I learned in my project in Jamaica is that my partnership was with the local community, and sometimes the national government gets in the way of that. Sometimes the local community and the national government are, in fact, um, don't see eye to eye. Uh, I expect that that would be, uh, to some extent, some of the same framework uh, that I'd be using in my engagement in Cuba. So I'd love your questions. Um, I'm, at a, I'm at a juncture of decision-making. Uh, these are, these are, this remains very much an open question uh, for me at the moment.
1: Good morning. Um, As Greg mentioned, I'm Charlotte Rogers. I am the newest uh, UVA faculty on this panel. So I just started my first year here uh, at the University of Virginia. Although I must say that I'm finding um, unusual connections with University of Virginia and Cuba uh, because my grandfather was class of 1937. Um, and he, he was actually featured in Life magazine as one of the new Virginia gentlemen, and there's a photo of him in 1937 lying in bed in a bathrobe, smoking on, on grounds. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, it's fabulous. So I know that if he were alive, he'd be happy uh, that I was speaking to you today. Um, Also, my same grandfather used to take my grandmother to Havana for the weekend in the mid-1950s. And so I think that would also be of interest to them to see how uh, Cuba and the University of Virginia's relationship with it may be changing. (laughs) So um, just to tell you a little bit about my work, I am a scholar of Latin American literature in general, and I I specialize in Cuba. The idea that I am fluent in Spanish and take a a more global approach to Cuba frees me from some of the polemical, political discussions that often happen. Um, So I feel free, especially because I'm not of Cuban descent, to explore all of Cuban literature and culture without becoming imprisoned uh, by, by that dialectic. And I would invite you to do the same thing. I have taken students on study abroad trips to Cuba, um, and I've also been several times to do research at uh, one of the foundations that's dedicated to an author I specialize in. I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a minute. Um, But because I have been several times, and for several years I was a professor at George Mason University, which is in the Washington, D.C. area. So, as Greg mentioned, when um, in December of 2014, a new policy on Cuba was announced, a lot of the um, news media was interested in finding specialists in Cuba, particularly in the D.C. area, who wanted to talk about this on camera. So I was contacted by uh, the NBC affiliate in in Washington um, and was featured in a segment on the local news that was all about what do these new changing regulations mean for average citizens who want to travel to Cuba? So I thought that was very exciting. Um, A friend of mine who's a reporter at NPR told me I had to prepare one soundbite that I wanted to to be my message that I would get across to the media because as a literary scholar, frankly, I'm not often on NBC. (laughs) So, um, So I very carefully prepared my message, which I will explain to you now. The new changing regulations with Cuba, the opening of diplomatic relations, makes it possible for students um, and, and lay people to find out that Cuba is so much more than just rum, revolution, and cigars. That's my message. Right? So I was successful in that NBC used my sound bite um, so I heard my own voice in the media proclaiming that Cuba is so much more than those three things. But what images did they show while you were hearing my voice? <laughs> Rum, revolution, and cigars. <laughs> So that was um, a serious learning experience for me that, uh, <laughs> that our message is not getting out there yet. Um, but I'm so thrilled to see you here today to understand that if you do go to Cuba or you're thinking of sending your children or anything like that, um, it's a wonderful opportunity to get outside the NBC media bubble. And, and yes, there is rum and there are cigars <laughs> and there are revolution, um, but there's much more than that as well. Um, So one example I'd like to give of what so much more we can see in Cuba is the concept of both ruins and resilience. Um, I think that when people travel to Cuba for the very first time, the, the aspect of ruin of the infrastructure and of some of the buildings is overwhelming. Um, When I first saw it, I thought it was like one of those TV shows, like what happens if humans disappeared from the earth? And buildings, you know, just they really do have what are called derrumbes, which is when a building collapses, um, because just because the infrastructure is crumbling and and there aren't the resources to to keep the buildings together. Uh, So I think some of the work that uh, Lewis is doing could be really um, important in that sense to sort of capture it uh, as things crumble. However, I want to push us beyond the idea of ruins, even though they can be beautiful or nostalgic or poignant or deeply terrible, um, to the idea of resilience. And that's what I've noticed over the last five years as I uh, go frequently to Cuba, um, the idea of resilience amid the ruins. So I'd like you to take a moment to look at this photo. This is not a perfectly restored 1958 Chevrolet. It is not a well-restored colonial building in Trinidad. Um, This is the center of Havana, um, away from the areas that tourists usually visit. Um, And one of my colleagues once didn't want me to put this photo up in my courses because she thought it was too depressing. (laughs) But I want you to look. You can feel the shock from the ruins. But I also want you to take a moment to look at signs of resilience in this photo. If you look carefully, what you'll see are water cisterns atop the buildings um, because water service is intermittent in Cuba. And so you can see how people collect water in order to uh, survive and go about their lives in the absence of infrastructure. Most importantly, you can see in certain places how people have begun building additional floors and rooms onto these buildings. Um, They're often made of corrugated tin, Uh, and and scavenged materials, Um, and this is because in Cuba, until recently, it was illegal to move from the house in which you were born. Um, And as families multiply, even if some of them go into exile, there just simply isn't enough room for everyone, and so people start to expand in this way um, so that they have to scavenge and and trade materials in order to, to build more living space. So, amongst my Cuban friends, um, after the opening of relations with the United States, one of the jokes, Cubans are fantastic jokers, by the way, one of the greatest jokes that was going around was like, oh, Obama, great, we're so glad he's visiting. And then they would say in Spanish, y cuando llega Home Depot, which means, when does Home Depot get here? <laughs> um, so, so if you're thinking of Cuba or if you're reading about Cuba, I urge you to go beyond that, that, that pristine image of the restored car and think about, for example, a motorcycle that I saw someone riding in Cuba in which every single part came from a different machine. So not only were the wheels different, but the spokes were different, and the, you know, each handlebar was different. I mean, it was, it's just amazing. Um, So that's really my message uh, for you, and I think we can talk a bit more. I have things to say about um, the author I work on that Althea mentioned, Alejo Carpentier. Uh, He was actually born in Europe but raised in Cuba, Um, and I do research at his... Uh, foundation called the Fundacion Alejo Carpentier uh, which is also in Havana and here you can see it's a very nicely restored uh, for the most part a 1930s construction with a large 1950s high-rise built behind it um, that may be in the process of, of crumbling as well um, so I'd love to continue our conversation about what it's like to try to buy books in Havana what to see what's uh, what's permitted and what's not um, but I think I'll, I'll wait on all of those issues so that we can talk uh, to more together Thank you very much. Thank
2: you, Charlotte. You know, um, just I'd love to level set. How many people in this room have been to Cuba? Ah, aha. So there's some expertise already in the room. How many of you are planning to go soon? You've already got a ticket, you've got something scheduled, people to people, okay, okay. So I saw some hands twice, so some of you are going back a second time. And I'm assuming uh, the rest of the people in the room are curious about what might be going on there and might be planning a trip at some point in the future. Um, We'll talk, uh, I think, in this panel about all three of those. And we've tried to think about our trips uh, and our our educational objectives that way. You know, a common question I'm asked is, goodness gracious, what is the business school doing in a socialist nation? Why in the world were you guys going there? And We've been there now. Uh, This will be our third year running. Uh, Why in the world were you going there? Well, you know, the story I'll take you back to is in 1992, I was a student here. I'm an alum as well. And I, um, I, I was at the Darden School, and I got an offer to go to the Soviet Union to study at Moscow State University for two weeks, but also to spend a week up in Leningrad. And this was a relationship that the Darden School had with Moscow State University. And it was this understanding that even in the heart of communism, socialism, there's a lot that we learn about economic institutions, the way they create value for the people that are in a society, the way people think about economic institutions. And so um, over the years, I did a lot of work as a business school professor in which I was in Eastern Europe when I've been having similar discussions about transitions. And so uh, when the notion of taking students to Cuba came around, it fit. But I have to also tell you that as I reflect on what I hear from Charlotte and Lewis, you know, business school trips are different. So I, I, I appreciated so much uh, Charlotte's visual of um, the rum, the cigars, and uh, che, because when you go on a business school trip, you're talking, you're spending less time in those uh, those places that Lewis showed you. And frankly, you're spending more time with the business institutions and economic institutions that are thinking about, talking about, engaging the change. So in fact, we met with uh, the folks that are running Havana Club. And uh, we talked with them about uh, their efforts to try to expand that brand. Uh, That's a brand, if you've been on the island, you've seen it. Um, And they're trying to actually take their rum to a higher level uh, relative to an old company that used to be there called... Bacardi. In a world of small coincidences, the Darden schools had a long relationship with the Bacardi family and the Bacardi uh, company. And yet, we all know that they were kicked out of there. Um, You know, we had a cigar tasting event. um, And at the same time, that was with Cohiba. Because Cohiba was very interested in talking to my students about why they felt the opening Uh, was going to be one that was going to create some interesting opportunities for them as a brand. You know, and I tell you these to say, I think those are the visual symbols. But so much of what is happening in the change is about people like yourself that might visit. The economy there is one where the hard currency that Westerners can bring in has been important for a while. So by the way, um, it's not uncommon that Canadians or Germans or uh, the French travel there. But the notion that a large uh, body of wealthy people who are Westerners from 90 miles away could fly down there is part of uh, not just the Home Depot interest, but part of a big set of conversations that are going on down there. And so these conversations are producing some interesting fissures in the society. What will it mean Uh, for this onslaught of Westerners to arrive who want uh, Western quality conditions in the food they eat, in the places they lay their head, and in the tourist events they go to. Um, What will it mean for the entrepreneurs that will try to tap into this? Entrepreneurship is not especially... uh, It's allowed, but I wouldn't tell you that it was endorsed. Um, And so there are many entrepreneurs, and my students worked with entrepreneurs while there. I could talk more about that. But they operate in a world where what they do is legal and at the same time gray. And so there is excitement about going beyond uh, 1950s cars to spas. Uh, this was one of the businesses we worked with, to businesses that would babysit and nurse and as a nursery school daycare center for children, and how that would be and serve the Westerners who were coming. Um, and I could go on, art on down the line. A lot of these business owners, struggle with uh, starting out in a new way um, in which their government doesn't, like I said, endorse what they do. But how do you market if you've been in a society where there's never been marketing? You do know about propaganda but marketing is a very different thing and it's not been allowed it's not been allowed to happen but you know that there are these Westerners you want to reach them. There's one other thing that uh, some of you may know about. The entrepreneurs are in dire need again of capital a lot of that capital comes from familial relations that exist here in the West. And so if you happen to be a Cuban who happens to have a cousin, who happens to live in the US, or uh, as I met uh, someone who married someone from Canada, then you are able to get um, capital in the form of uh, direct money from family. And by the way, Obama has allowed those numbers to increase dramatically. And the important part of this is, again, you've got a class of people who are doing something not endorsed by the government, but they are now seeing incredible amounts of money coming in from offshore that the average Cuban doesn't see. And so this is creating some haves and have-nots in a society that has prided itself since the revolution in being a response to have and have-nots. I'll stand down and uh, uh, the rest of you guys can... Join in.
3: I'll I'll jump in on that. Um, One of the uh, questions that has long plagued me that will remain unanswered uh, is, to what extent did uh, the University of Virginia Field School in Historic Preservation, active in Falmouth, Jamaica, uh, play a role in setting that community up for exploitation by the national government and in its partnership with Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines? Um, When we started, uh, it was an entirely marginal community. Um, the rail- not even the railroad had stopped there. Uh, the railroad had gone by. Nobody cared about Falmouth. Falmouth was entirely ignored. Um, then the University of Virginia uh, began a sort of significant personal—not really a capital investment. We didn't, really, you know, we brought some money in the sense that we were, um, you know, hiring some locals for basic services, laundry, et cetera. Um, but you know, we were, we're not coming with a whole lot of uh, fiscal capital. Um, but our investment in the community um, helped the community to begin to understand that it actually had its own history. That uh, just because uh, it was um, under-resourced and, uh, and geographically marginal didn't actually mean that it, it didn't matter. And we were arguing that, in fact, it did matter and it did have a community. Um, so a, a sense of self, a historical sense of self, began to emerge. Um, uh, greater and greater investment in the restoration uh, by the community of their own, of their own buildings. Uh, um, we started to see the cleaning of some streets, uh, not all of them, <laughs> but some, um, and uh, then halfway through that project, uh, the national government made a, signed a contract with um, a very, very powerful external e- entity who initially contacted me, after the contract was signed, contacted me and asked me to kind of partner with them. Um, after some conversations, it became clear that uh, my, my criteria would not meet their uh, standards, so those, those negotiations fell through. Um, but it, you know, it raises all kinds of questions, and uh, it's a it's a question that uh, that haunts me as our, as we're thinking about Trinidad. Trinidad is already identified by the Cuban government and by people who travel to Jamaica as a as a tourist destination. So there, that that's already sort of out of the gate. Um, uh, but I need to make sure that the work that we do, in fact, uh, is something that is primarily framed around um, helping the local community. Uh, um, Helping to resource the local community uh, and to empower the local community in a certain way. Uh, I have, you know, uh, I would not engage in my program if I felt like I was setting that community up simply for extended exploitation by tourists, by us, because we can do some real damage.
1: (laughs) I'd like to tell a brief anecdote that connects what Greg was talking about with the idea of entrepreneurship uh, with the idea of resilience that I mentioned earlier. Um, And that is that when I was in Havana maybe four years ago, I was looking to buy books because I'm a literary uh, scholar and so I went with a friend to one of the main squares in Havana where if you've been there, you've seen they sell um, an outdoor market with a kind of potpourri of literary selection. Most of them are books about Che um, or speeches by Fidel, and then some old, like, culinary books from the 1950s. Um, but I wasn't really finding any contemporary Cuban authors who were publishing. Um, there were a few that are accepted by the regime, but I was interested in exploring the boundaries of what can be published in Cuba and what can't because, um, as Greg said, I think there's a lot of gray areas there. So as I was looking, um, one of the booksellers came over to me and said, you know, what are you looking for? And I said, well, it can be kind of delicate because i'm interested in some authors who are not frequently published on the island Um, and he said oh just a minute and he pulled over one of his friends and said and gave me a card and said come to this address tonight at five o'clock um and i thought about it for a while and decided that this was going to be my chance (laughs) so so I went to the address uh, after telling someone else where I was going. <laughs> um, I did, yeah. Yeah, I'm a solo female traveler in Cuba, so that, uh, yes, I'm accustomed to that. <laughs> so, so I show up to this very nice neighborhood in Havana, um, lots of gates um, and well-manicured lawn, and I'm admitted into this home that is clearly owned by someone who has what they call in Cuba, fe. And that's another Cuban joke, um, because the word fe means faith, right? meaning faith in the revolution, faith that, that we will triumph. Um, but also, the word fe is spelled F-E. And it stands for familia and el extranjero, which means family outside the island. <laughs> so what, so when, if you say you have Fay, what, what that means is that you have a family member who's able to bring you things from Miami. Um, so for example, this house was spotlessly clean, had a larger flat-screen TV than I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was huge. Um, really nice furniture. The gentleman was immaculately dressed with jewelry and watches and everything. So I could tell that this was a very successful entrepreneur. Um, And we sat very nicely in his living room. He served me a a coffee. Um, We talked about literature. What did I like? What did I read? And he said, okay, I'll be right back. And he closed the door, went into a back room, and came out with a stack of 25 books that are prohibited on the island, but that I had been looking for. And so I was very impressed. Uh, The prices were comparable to what you pay here in the US, as opposed to on the street. They're much, uh, much cheaper. Um, And so as we continued to talk, and I could tell he was essentially a literary scholar, right? I mean, he would have done what I do, Um, if that had been economically viable in Cuba. But instead, he had become an expert in literature. He had worked his connections um, in the very gray area of bringing in uh, books from outside, either from Spain or from Miami, um, and had built a business by word of mouth, by handing out cards on the street to people um, so that, I could spend my convertible pesos, my dollars, um, at his shop. And so I think that's a good example of working in that gray area. I think Cubans are the most entrepreneurial people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the hustle is is extreme, especially I'm sure those of you who have traveled there have experienced that. Um, And it it, it arises from um, a sense of desperation in many cases, but also the sense that that they're going to do it for themselves um, if they're not going to have a support system to do it for them. So,
2: you know, um, in thinking about uh, Charlotte's comments um, about this way that these, this community is changing, again, there's the government um, and there's the way it would like things to change. And then there is the change that's occurring in the margins. And, um, you know, I can tell you just a couple of stories that are not unlike uh, Charlotte's story. You know, um, She showed earlier a photo of downtown Havana. And, you know, I I so much credit you because those aren't often the photos that come out. Uh, They are of the cars. They are of the beautiful uh, places. But I have to tell you that when you travel to a place like this with 26 MBA students uh, who are being sent out into the night, um, you have some worries about whether they'll all come back every morning for class. And, um... And here's what I have to tell you. And some of you in the room may have these same experiences. It was, this is a very easily-traveled city by uh, English-speaking Westerners. It's a city in which, uh, over three years, we've never had any, um, shall we say, um, issues around crime, any issues of challenges for our students. Um, we've always found them to say, the Cuban people both love the revolution. Or at least say that they do. And at the same time, are very happy about uh, the United States and the United States coming. Um, and so when they would go out at night, in these, some of these places, there are paladars. And paladars are uh, restaurants that run out of individuals' homes. Some of them, the ones that get a lot of fee, the ones that have a lot of money from external sources, actually look just like restaurants you'd find in... Um, New York City, Chicago, any major city in the U.S. But some others are actually in buildings just like this. And our students went and ate in places just like this. And I have to tell you that they came back with this sense of um, this resilience that I live in a place where I do get the water from a cistern. And I actually, the the notion of having to go out and get um, fresh vegetables, high-quality meat, uh, to feed seven, eight, nine people that are coming on a given night is actually not just a thing you do. And so they ended up in conversations about well, where, did, where did you get uh, the goat that you're serving us tonight? And that, by the way, takes you even more into this linkage of gray areas. The other thing that I think is fascinating is um, we spent time at the University of Havana. This is a nation that prides itself on the notions of equality. And uh, the professor at the University of Havana told us to be on the lookout for something in our Western locations. She said, and she actually looked at me as the faculty leader of of this trip, she said, there'll be very few people you will see working in any of the restaurants who look like the professor. She said, the people you will see in all the establishments will look like his students. And in fact, my students found as they traveled throughout the city. Especially in these more, um, shall we say, uh, accoutrement, these more, these more established organizations, these more established restaurants and Palador's, the staff uh, didn't look like me. And the people out front were people who looked like my students. And so this is another part of the way that the country, I think, is dealing with uh, these realities. They pride themselves and criticize the US in propaganda for our civil rights movement. I can recall Angela Davis leaving the United States and going to Cuba because she said that it was a racially open-minded society. And yet, uh, they're finding that keeping that is becoming very, very hard for them to do. And so uh, we ended up, uh, this person alerted us to it. We ended up in a fascinating discussion with some students at University of Havana before we left about these issues of equality and diversity in their society and how they're not unlike some of the things we deal with here.
3: And that's actually where um, history, of course, always always the critical frame, right? Uh, history really steps in, and that is uh, the town on the south coast of Trinidad is um, as sort of a village center for a huge district of, of Havana, of Cuba, in the late 18th and early 19th century that began to have a significant investment in sugarcane production. Uh, and sugarcane production is enormously extractive of the land, but it also requires uh, a large workforce population. Um, where in the late 18th century are Cubans getting those enslaved Africans? They're actually all being processed through Kingston, Jamaica. Um, and so, one one of the things that is, is a very very interesting connection for me is to look at the establishment of uh, one of the uh, Brazil aside, which is the huge is the largest uh, consumer of enslaved Africans uh, in the eighteenth um, in the nineteenth centuries. Uh, Jamaica is almost second after that. Um, and one of the major reasons that Jamaica is such an enormous consumer of, sl- of enslaved Africans in the late 18th and early 19th century is the fact that they're also processing for delivery to Cuba. right? Uh, it's, it's a way station. And so for me as an historian, there's a really important historical connection between the two. And when I was in Cuba, unlike Jamaicans who, um, uh, where the issue of slavery is, f- is in the forefront constantly... It's just a constant, I mean, outside of the resorts, right? I mean, they never talk about it there, of course. But um, like on the streets, in, in like real spaces in Jamaica, um, slavery is just a critical frame. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a reality. I found almost nobody in Cuba who was willing to talk about it. A, 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 this fundamental uh, sort of distinction, um, slavery was just not um, a critical historical narrative to the, to the event, actually, that uh, some uh, Cubans would deny that Cuba engaged in slavery, um, which of course is just not, not true. <laughs> so um, encouraging Cubans to begin to write a narrative of their own history that is more truthful um, on this issue of enslaved uh, Africans, um, I think can be an issue that uh, can help Cubans today begin to really grapple with. I mean, it, uh, history always reflects on the present, right? We, we write history because we're concerned about present issues. Um, and I, I think, I think um, racial inequality in Cuba is a really critical and very interesting problem that in fact they're not, they're not grappling with very well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and just to follow up on that, I think one of the main challenges that Cuban historians will have is that the um, dogmatic line in, in the revolution is that the revolution cured racism. There, right. uh, you know, Fidel said, now there's no racism because I abolish it. Um, and I think that your experience in the, the restaurants shows that very clearly. But Even if you look at the, the party hierarchy in Cuba, there are not people of color represented there. Um, so, and the notion of race in Cuba is wildly different because of its long history of slavery and, and racial intermixing. So, um, so, so it's a very complicated topic uh, that, it, that you can perceive for yourself on your trips, or you may have already.
2: So we're betting that some of you have some things that uh, you'd like to bring into this dialogue. And so um, I see a hand over here on the right. I see two. Can I have more? Um, we're gonna we're gonna bring microphones around to you, and uh, please um, let us know what you're thinking and what you're wondering about.
1: Socialism in play in the restaurants and the spas. Are people equal partners, or is it sort of already a capitalist system where someone's the owner and they have employees? Of course
2: I am from the business school, so we love capitalism. (laughs) Um, You know, I should tell you that, um, just a a brief here, there are um, entrepreneurial enterprises that are allowed by the government. Uh, allowed, again, doesn't mean endorsed, and I'm not going to do a, a long uh, song and dance on the legal structure. But this idea that you could own a business, and that is uh, have the, the rights to the equity of that firm, are exactly there, and they're beginning to be formed. These businesses are taxed at incredibly high rates, which is part of what Lewis was obliquely referring to, that the success of these businesses is actually success for the government. And so there's a bit of an interesting relationship there. Now, the question I think you want to know is, so what's it like when you go and your students spend a week consulting with those business owners and they get to see how those businesses are run? I think that's your question. And what I take from it is that we found these folks are trying to manage, and they're carrying along. On the one hand, yes, these socialist beliefs about equality, everybody in here should get the same amount of salary. Uh, should we not? We shouldn't do it hourly. I shouldn't be working people long hours. And at the same time, this idea of management, management of a capitalist enterprise, isn't something they yet know what that is. And so it's interesting because some of the requests from us were to help them think through the, the the nursing the nursery school person asked us to help her think through how she was compensating her workers in that most of the people that would be taking care of Westerners' children weren't her full-time employees in her nursing school, but would go out to the hotels, to the spas, to the places where the Westerners would be staying. And, you know, I guess my best way of answering is, I think she didn't know. I think she doesn't know, and I think she'd like to do it in this more equitable, shall we say, socialist way. But at the same time, it's her business. And she's trying to protect her business, and she's trying to grow it. And that's what my students ended up consulting with her about, is helping her think through that. And that's one example of the types of ways I guess I've tried to say, this is fuzzy for a lot of the Cuban people that are involved in business. What will business look like? How will it fit what we know in the past? How do, Again, how do I advertise? How do I employ? We just don't know. And so uh, it's fuzzy.
4: I'd be very much interested in the economic realm of things that would uh, advance the U.S. relationship or set it well back, because it seems like our president has maxed out on what an executive can do, uh, the executive branch can do to loosen the restrictions, but, of course, the boycott's still in place. And my take is, is that he's loosed these Restrictions in many ways, and then leaving it if a future government comes back to retrench those things they 're going to have to put the cork back in the dike that is wildly um, you know changed. Um, I was there in ninety nine and last year, and Lewis was in part of what you were talking about the uh, and of course, the joking nature of it was was. Several Cubans would say, Oh, well, you know, to look at the best and the worst of Cuba, what we do best is music, sports, and medicine, and training doctors and exporting our medical um, education. And w- what's the shortcomings of Cuba is breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> and I thought that covers a huge, huge, of course. The, uh, a whole lot. Um, so in the in the economic realm, which I think is going to dictate the future between our countries and governments, what would be those things like Archer Daniel Midland, all the Caterpillar, all that huge stuff that's been making overtures to Cuba for at least a decade? Um, and then the Cuban response to this capitalist outbreak and what could... Set back um, this relationship, and of course, the transition of power that looms large, like in any um, emerging situation. But
2: I'll take a first bite. Um, but you know, Lewis, uh, can... Charlotte, and I—we were talking, and Lewis has already referred to this. You know, we're going to—we're so we, willing to do some crystal balling, but it's a difficult thing. Um, you know, to this economic thing, I just want to put a little fine point on something I said earlier. So. One of the things that um, the executive branch can do is it can allow for tourism. Tourism allows for the direct introduction of hard capital um, in a way that uh, Archer Daniels Midland, uh, Caterpillar, large commercial enterprises, Home Depot uh, coming there, have to go through a very different process of negotiation with the government than any of you who've traveled or any of you that will travel. Go down and drop some money while you're there. And, that, and if that money, by the way, is then taxed at very high rates in the government-run enterprises, then all those dollars are captured for the government. This is not unlike the relationship the Cubans have had around, in fact, their medical, uh, their medical expertise. They send the medical expertise around the globe. It is high quality. And at the same time, the bulk of the funds that are paid for that medical work transfer back to the government. So my take on it is, in the short run, you will see this effort at getting people like the people in this room to come there and to get you to spend more and more money while you're there. Airbnb is there now. Um, Getting you to spend more and more money while you're there will be the first step, because that will be much harder for a government to control than will be um, a large uh, commercial but somebody who I typically work with at the business school who would try to get down there. I will just add only one other thing. Ever since the press came out that we had been down there, the number of calls I have gotten from people that would like to start businesses there or would like to do JVs down there, I get a call. For, whenever we go, there's media. And then for about six weeks, I get calls from people asking about uh, they'd love to do a joint venture down there. But I'll, I'll turn to others on this one. Uh-huh.
1: Going back to the idea of what products would um, make a a difference in, in Cuba, especially as economic relationships open, I see a very deep hunger for consumer goods um, amongst ordinary Cubans, in a way that directly contradicts the ideals of the revolution, but everyone 's okay with that <laughs> um, and just to give an idea, you I mean you said breakfast, lunch, and dinner certainly um, food imported foodstuffs. I have seen a major change in the last five or six years, when I first started going. I think I bought a North Korean snack, which blew my mind. I mean, there was very little um, that you could buy legally uh, from from the outside. But what I've seen in the last few years is a huge influx of goods from China. Huge. And so anything from toys uh, to foods um, to, you know, ladies, imagine if you were never able to have any beauty products. Right, um, And so that's the kind of thing that people are bringing in from Miami. Um, anything from food and clothing to creams, shampoo. Shampoo and toothpaste are a huge problem. Um, so I tend to bring – I buy toothpaste in bulk <laughs> and, and distribute when I'm there. Um, so I think that I'm not going to predict the future because I think Americans have been predicting the future in Cuba for 60 <laughs> years, and we're always wrong. Um, but, I would say that I can see the hunger for just basic necessities and a way in which people really appreciate american produced goods that their family members in exile bring to them so um, that 's from a just an observation point
3: another question. Mm-hmm.
4: Either, both. Hi. I'm curious if you have any insight into the timing of the opening of Cuba and the Cuban economy. It seemed that the Cold War ended a few years back. You know, why now? And Obama seemed to wait to the end of his uh, presidency, too. He was in office eight years, and he waited to pretty much the very end. You know, why didn't Bush open up the Cuban economy, or why didn't um, Clinton open up the Cuban economy? I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any perspective there.
2: I don't think we got a political scientist no. on, the, on the panel. Um, so, so we're, we're again going to be prognosticating. Um, if you um, were a Republican, uh, you might have to consider that there is a Miami vote, sir, uh, whoever that is back there, that, uh, does carry Cal- that does carry Florida that's wealthy, so it's Latino it's wealthy and it's Republican. And uh, again, this gentleman in the floral shirt may know more about this than than me, but the deal is you've got to get through that blockade and as George said, my brother Jeb is bringing me Florida. So that would probably be one reason, I'm guessing, not a political scientist. Um, But the second thing is I think if we notice There's been a big discourse going on between uh, Congress and the executive branch about where the line is on a number of things. I think what you'll find is that as it's trailing out, there's a lot of things that Obama's doing that uh, are happening in the trail out because he's in lame duck period. He can't be pulled back. And I don't know, to sort of riff a little bit on the last question, if you allow people to travel there, they have a really good time. They come back and tell great stories. You're not going to be able to pull back the travel, um, even if somebody else gets, in, gets elected. You're just not going to be able to pull it back. And so I think they're doing things that say, we're not going to be able to put this genie back in the bottle. I, the one other thing I'll tell you is, in the, again, I was there January 3, 2015. The announcement had only been made two weeks earlier. We went to the interest section which was what is now the embassy. We had a nice presentation. The economists giving the presentation for the, for the US federal government said, guess what? There'll be an embassy here within a year. And there was. Yeah, so.
1: yeah I think that Obama is capitalizing on the demographic shift in Florida. Um, because as that older generation of hardliner, anti-Castro people um, frankly, die away, and the younger Cuban Americans do not have as polemic uh, a look, and, and they like to go back on the people-to-people visits um, so that there's much more interaction there. I think that o- Obama can see that change coming, um, and for all the reasons Greg mentioned as well, that, that he's um, at the end of his term and can make grand gestures, uh, which was very exciting to those of us who work on Cuba. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs>
5: Thank you very much for the presentation of today. Uh, when I raise my hand, I am Cuban-born. And I have 51 years in this country. And I came at 36 years old. Yes, I am 90. Wow, yes. OK. Yes. Oh, yes. And I went to school with Fidel Castro. <coughs> He's a lawyer. And I was working my PhD in social political science. And I was in the Cuban Diplomatic for 12 years when I came to this country. So I, I know Cuba very well. Oh. <laughs> Would you like to come up? <laughs> it will throw me away. <laughs> but um, my, as you were talking, my whole thinking is I left the revolution. I love the revolution. And I am a Cuban Democrat to the core. All right, so I am not Miami-Cuban Republican. I am very liberal, and um, the, the whole process of living the revolution was very hard for me, and when the communism took over, because it was a process, the beginning of the revolution was not communist, socialist maybe, because we wanted the best for everyone, and that's why we joined it. I didn't join Fidel when we were students, because I was um, middle class, clean, Catholic, good girl. And he was always sweating and running with guns and thinking of revolution. And, and no, he was smelling, <laughs> <laughs> so he was, he was not my type. But, um, and politically in the university, we were very political. We were opposing. So much so that I broke one of his strikes. Right. And he called me next day and said, do you want to join us? I said, no, Rose. No, I don't want to. So I have a lot of stories about Cuba and being in Cuba and living in Cuba. But my process, what I think is the impact that is going to happen to the Cubans, the new generation of Cubans that were born during the revolution and that are not like born in my time, as the impact of the uh, Americans going to, to there, like you helping, contacting people, being in touch with people, and what is going to happen if they are going to be able to revolt? Because, yes, Fidel is my age, but uh, Raul is younger, and I don't consider Fidel communist. Fidel is Fidelist. He has his ideals. (laughs) He negotiated with Russia because Che Guevara and his brother Raul, who is a communist, tell him, you're not going to get help, we need help. And I saw with my eyes, signed those treaties. I was in the Secretary of State in Havana at that point. So for me, was the end. I knew that this is the end. And this is total takeover of communism, and I have to get out. So would you
2: share your name, please? I'm sorry.
5: Rosa Jimenez Vasquez. Bravo. My family name is Jimenez. And my whole family came.
2: And, and, and um, this is just such a great treat uh, for you to have shared this. And I, I hope there's someone we, we capture you. Um, and I'm so glad you. Right. I'm just I'm, I'm elated.
5: Yeah. For me, the importance is. The impact that your work is going to do in Cuba and the transformation of the feeling of people moving toward uh, democracy. See, I won't. Back, I won't go back till democracy exists in Cuba. So I don't know if I will see it. So thank you for Give your. Give her a hand, work. please. Uh, there
2: may be other questions. Um, um, Uh, um, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we're sorry. We're not, we have bad eyes.
1: I was just curious about religious life and what your observations are in Cuba. Um, I would direct you to our colleague who is not here because she's actually in Cuba right now. Her name is Jelaine Schmidt, um, and she's just published a book about um, the The Virgin of uh, Charity yes. um, which is a, a variation of the Virgin mary um, cult in in Cuba, and she really reads it as. Um, it, it used to be, before the Revolution, when The patron, she is the patron saint of Cuba, so very closely allied with both the Catholic Church and as well as with the Yoruba African religion. So there's a syncretism in religious life in Cuba, as in throughout the, the Caribbean. Um, but with the coming of the Revolution, um, for, for a long time, religious practice was uh, forbidden. And a, a friend of mine who's a librarian in Havana was fired from her job because she was a believing Catholic. Um, so they went through a long period of oppression. And now, um, as Cuba, you know, the visit of, um, of the pope in the 90s really opened things up. And uh, practicing Catholicism was no longer prohibited. Um, and it's been gradually opened. Um, to people of all faiths. So that one of my students actually went to um, uh, have dinner with a Jewish family while she was there. Um, and there's some people do practice Buddhism, even. So, so there's more plurality. I'm not going to paint a rosy picture. I don't think that it's supported in any way. Um, and I think that practicing, um, certainly the Virgin of, of Charity, is, can be um, uh, complicated. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, I, I think Lewis might have some. Well, I was just I
3: say, um, so while we were there, Um, as part of this people-to-people program with uh, UVA alumni uh, and parents about two months ago, it was pretty clear that the experience we had was, to some extent, orchestrated by the Cuban government, right? There were certain things that we definitely um, were expected to see. And uh, to my surprise, one of those was a a Santeria chapel. Uh, It was, you know, so the sort of indigenous religious tradition... Um, is, I think, uh, being co-opted by the Cuban government as part of a package for the Cuban experience, right? Um, and so in addition to the cars and the food and the dancing and the uh, you know the, the jazz clubs and all that, there's also, I think, part of that package is an intentional framing of Santeria as um, on the edge of, still within Catholicism, on the edge of Catholicism, um, but, you know, sort of clear messaging for, a, you know, slightly interested uh, American consuming audience who might be kind of curious about exotic religious traditions, but um, not, you know, maybe a little freaked out by something that is uh, deeply dark magic and, and these kinds of things. So it's, it's, it was for me, I learned a little bit about century as well, but it, for me, it was really interesting about the way it was presented uh, as part of this kind of package. So, so religion is uh, alive and well. Uh, and part of the marketing.
6: I have, a, I have a question to ask, or perhaps, and it is a criticism in a certain sense. I have a bit of a background. I've never been to Cuba, but I have, like you, a Darden MBA. I also have a PhD in Latin American history from, the, from here from UVA, and have taught even a seminar in Cuba. I find, for example, or I have a question, was that picture that you've shown of all the wretched apartments in uh, Havana, downtown Havana, indicative of the entire country? Or is that, and what my point is, that looks to me like the same propaganda that I read in the Washington Post daily. Every time there's a mention of Cuba in the Washington Post and there's a picture, it's of some wretched looking apartments and this isn't can't all be that true or these people would have gotten for the entire country i'm just saying there needs to be a little bit more balance as with the lady from havana was talking about is that it, it isn't all everybody you know being you know there must be some nice parts of havana and that sort of thing and yet all we were shown was a picture looking like the whole world is about to crumble
2: so, you know, um, I think you're spot on in in our uh, miss in not showing more visuals. In fact, we have a few more we could put up at this moment. But let me say, um, if we've left anyone the impression that all of Cuba is either, uh, gee, white sandy beaches and, um, and uh, adobe places, uh, it isn't. If we've left the impression that all of Cuba are that specific type of architecture in Havana, of which, by the way, that's a specific part of old Havana. Mm-hmm. Other parts of Havana have high-rises that uh, would look like what you'd see in western cities and um, are quite different. Um, if we've left you any impression that that's uh, what we meant to leave you with, I, don't, I, I can tell you that's our miss and we take responsibility for it. You know. One of the things that I struggle with as a business school professor, Darden alum, fellow Darden alum, let me say, you know, when the business school goes on a trip, we get the red carpet treatment wherever we go. When I went to the Soviet Union, man, I had a great time. When I've been to India, we always have a nice time. When I go to Cuba, we have a nice time. Every developing country I go in, when I go with the business school trip, you get to see I I, we never the only reason my students went in those places is because they went. The itinerary that gets laid out uh, for the business school crew is red carpet all the way. So, um, gee, one of the more surreal moments was um, you can go to, you, on one of these itineraries, you can go down to the beaches. And I don't know if either of you got a chance to go down, but there are two types of beaches there are the beaches for the Westerners, and there are the beaches for the Cuban nationals. Some of you are nodding. And so we got to, go to the, we got to go to the Westerner Beach. The Westerner Beach has beautiful Miami-style uh, hotel resorts that you can hang out in and drink and have a beautiful time. And the part of it that was surreal was not so much that, and we could get into all that. But um, part of the requirement of that visit is that you have to have a presentation from the Spanish-Cuban joint venture company that runs the resort. Um, And so they come and they do an hour-long presentation on the business of running the resort, which is appropriate for a business school. And the part that was surreal for me was, so here we are, and the presentation goes, and they show the charts and the spreadsheets and all stuff my business students are loving. And then we're back to this thing about a society that's that's questioning its change because all of a sudden – The moderator turned on a dime and said, "Um, So, you know, uh, we're really glad you're here. We're hoping you have a great day and you're going to spend a bunch of money. And he then, and this was the turn, he says, So, in your nation, um, these types of institutions, um, you don't really have these. Only wealthy people get to go to your hotels. And um, your hotels are all uh, excluded and segregated on the basis of income. He says, um, We, I very much believe in the revolution. And um, again, really glad you're here and you're going to spend your money. But I'm kind of disappointed in y'all. And. Um, so I just, I mean, I got to tell you, it's a beautiful place. It's got, you know, I hadn't seen yet. You've seen in some new places these um, living walls where the, the wall is plants all the way from. They, they, they got all that. So there's some beautiful stuff. We just didn't show it to you, at least in my book. Um, Charlotte may... may. She cued she the photo. You have to shoot she, it her.
1: <laughs> oh, it's my fault. Oh. Um, I, I've traveled uh, extensively in Cuba outside of Havana, and I would urge you to do the same thing. Um, I think there's a great variety of architectural style, which Lewis could talk to us more about, from the, the colonial re- restored buildings in Trinidad. I find this Soviet architecture to be incredible, um, especially on the outskirts of Havana. Um, so, so there is a variety, um, to answer the gentleman's question, there is a variety and I, I think that my purpose in showing that photo was to encourage those of you who may be going to Cuba, you'll be staying in the top-notch resorts um, and I think that it is important to enjoy that and you can appreciate it even more, <laughs> perhaps, uh, if you also are what walk in places where real Cubans live.
3: So, so let me just have one little follow-up on that. Um, Havana is a, is a ver- has a very large um, uh, building footprint, uh, and a, a big, huge percentage of it has not been restored in ways that um, an American audience might think of as restored um, and In photographs it does it looks crumbling uh, much of that is a result of the lack of access to uh, materials. We immediately make this uh, correlation between a sort of a crumbling architectural um, infrastructure and profound you know, poverty and depravity. Um, and I'll tell you, I've seen significantly deeper poverty and depravity in Jamaica than I saw, than I saw in Cuba. Um, and as soon as I got outside of Havana, the, um, my experience of the built environment and the architectural landscape was, was really very different. Uh, little villages outside of the town, uh, outside of Havana, um, are just are really wonderful um, surviving uh, villages, But they have uh, a, a more stable, c- because the, the building fabric in the villages isn't as, isn't as substantial. Uh, the, the architecture in 19th century Havana is just massive. And so to preserve that and to keep it up, is just, it, it's a huge investment. You out, go out to the small towns, the, the building fabric just isn't that, and so it doesn't lend itself to these kinds of um, uh, Im- emotive photography that you see so much coming out of Havana. And I, th- I think that's largely unique to Havana, but not the rest of, the, not the rest of Cuba.
2: We really only have time for one question, so... Uh, in the know, back, has been asking. Yeah. is kind of difficult. <laughs> He's really stretching back there in the
3: corner. He's had his hand up for an hour. <laughs> um. Thank you. Um, sorry, I have kind of a... Selfish question, but I uh, was really touched by Ms. jimenez Vasquez when she stood up. And I'm, you wouldn't believe it by looking at me, but I'm third-generation Cuban-American. And my grandmother came over from Cuba in the 40s, and she would be about Ms. jimenez Vasquez's age now if she were still alive. Um, but she passed away when I was in elementary school, and she didn't want anything to do with Cuba, never spoke Spanish at home. I mean, about the most Cuban experience I ever had growing up was when she fried plantains, and... I'm, you know, with this new opening to Cuba, I'm really fascinated by finding a way to reconnect, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts, and hopefully this has broader implications, not just for me, but when you talk about Faye and the, the family abroad, and how how are those experiences, and, and in what ways can people legitimately connect with Cuban culture?
2: I... I... I, I have just a, a story I have to tell. Um, you know, the first year I went, there was a student. Uh, this guy grew up in Greenwich. His father runs a, a venture capital firm in Greenwich. And his name is J.M. Fryback, And he's you. Uh, he is uh, third generation Cuban descent. And um, I had no idea. He approaches me and he said, Greg, you know, this is the first time anyone in my family has been back on the island in 40 years. He had a letter. Uh, from his uncle, uh, that he had never, his granduncle, I guess, great uncle, that he had never met. So he says to me, Can I leave the itinerary that we have set? Which is uncomfortable because they're run by the government and they're, they're so you're playing with some fire. But uh, he and uh, another student I allowed to leave, and they went to go find the home that his family had grown up in. And I, I could go on with more of it. He found his cousins. He reconnected with them. He, um, he spent a part of that day with just family members that never thought they would see each other. In fact, we did an NPR interview about it, so it's out there in the, in the, in the internet someplace. You, for someone like you, um, this is a real opportunity. I saw it happen. Um, he brought back a letter from his uncle and his cousins and photos with them and just blew the whole family away. But they may have other Yeah, no,
1: I have (laughs) similar experiences with students I've taken abroad who are a later generation, and the fascinating part for them is for some of the, the, the students, their parents really didn't want them to go back. Um, and didn't, you know, because of political reasons, or just the trauma of exile, didn't want to engage with Cuba. But the the younger generation is very hungry for that, and I would just say, I urge you to go and do it, just as Greg has, Um, because even if some of my students weren't able to find their family members or remote cousins, but they found their neighbors who would tell them stories about their grandparents when they were children. Um, So it's it's really beautiful, and it's not in that far in the past. So um, I would urge you to do that. Um, I think that's very exciting.
2: Well, I guess uh, I'm being given the signal uh, that we're pulling up the the curtain. Uh, thank you all very much. Welcome back to the university. We're glad to spend time with you
1: today. Really appreciate
0: it. So we have some gifts for our.